You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. This is our sermon series, Midtown Beats. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Genesis chapter 1 and 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make humans in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all of the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humans in his image and the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. My name is Timothy Paul Jones. I have the privilege and the joy of serving as one of your pastors here today. Good to be with you and to talk about today about the values we vibe to as a congregation. Let's pray together. God, we thank you, we praise you for the day that you give to us. We praise you for the beauty of this day. We know that this world is far more beautiful than we know or observe or deserve, and it is, and you give it to us. And I ask that you would help us, that we may end the beauty of the world around us, that we would see that for what it is, a sign that points to you, the ultimate beauty. God, I pray that the only words that are remembered today are those that express your truth and bring you glory. In your name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, there was a man in Michigan, lived in Michigan, and he had this 22-pound rock. And this 22-pound rock had come from a farm that he had owned, and he was using it as a doorstop. And he used it as a a doorstop for 30 years, from 1988 till about 2018. And around 2018, he made the decision, I'm going to find out something more about this rock that I have been using as a doorstop for the past three decades. So in 2018, he went and he found a geologist and had the geologist take a look at this rock. And he was shocked to discover that the rock was worth more than his house. (laughs) Because it was not, in fact, merely a rock. It was not merely a 22-pound stone. It was, in fact, a meteorite from outer space that was a very rare and large meteorite that was worth upwards of $100,000 for this particular meteorite. And he did what you do and what I do, which is we sell that space rock. And that's exactly what he did, too. Because you all know the space rocks are nice, but cash is better, right? Okay, so he takes it out and he sells the this rock. He gets rid of it because of the fact that it is worth so much more than he ever imagined. But here's what's fascinating about that. He walked by that rock day after day after day for three decades, and he never knew its real value because he didn't realize that it didn't come from the earth beneath him. It came from the heavens beyond him. 
And it was worth more than he ever dreamed that it was. And here's what I think. When it comes to beauty and creativity and art and things like that, it is much like that for us. We see it all around us, but we often miss its real value and its real beauty because we forget that it doesn't just come as a byproduct of the world around us. Anything that is truly beautiful or true or good can be traced back to, it points back to the heavens beyond us, the God who is beyond us. It's worth more than we know. It's not a byproduct of the world around us, but it points to the heavens beyond us, and it's worth more than we know. Now, creativity and the arts, that's one of the values we vibe to here at Sojourn Midtown. Jamal's already talked about some of our other values about biblical faithfulness, gospel-centeredness, relentless mission, and diverse fellowship. Next week, we'll talk about relationships. But this week, what we're talking about is the value that we have on creativity and the arts. Now, this has been part of Sojourn all the way back to the beginning of Sojourn. Even before I arrived at Sojourn about 2007, this has been part of Sojourn's culture and who we are. There was a time in the past in when April was Cultivate Beauty Month back in the early 2000s. Cultivate Beauty Month, thanks to Michael Winters. We have a picture of Cultivate Beauty Month all the way back uh, toward the early years of the congregation. As part of that, at one time, there was Kill your TV. And so Kill Your TV was about destroying televisions, smashing televisions, which went really well until people realized that old televisions actually leak toxic chemicals. And so you shouldn't be doing that, smashing old TVs. But that was part of it at that time. Today, we don't smash any TVs or anything like that. But as you walk in outside, from the outside, you find a gallery, a gallery that values art. You look around you, there's a conscious focus on creativity and the arts and what we do. And if you want to learn more about Sojourn's story in that, more about that, you can look. Michael Winters has done a book called Filling Blank Spaces. Take a look at the book, Filling Blank Spaces by Michael Winters. Now, some of you right now, I want to give you a warning. You're starting to tune out already. Now, here's why you're tuning out. You're thinking, I can't carry a tune. I got kicked out of art class. I, I am so bad. I am not artistic. Therefore, I am not creative. And because I am not creative, I am not artistic. Therefore, none of this actually applies to me. But I want you to understand something. No matter who you are, first off, you can value beauty and see how it points to God. You can value beauty. But more importantly, beyond even valuing beauty, you are creative. No, no, I'm not, I'm not creative. You have not seen what I draw. It's not creative. But here's what I want you to understand. Wherever you cultivate order and beauty that causes people to flourish, you are creative and your creativity is for God's glory. It's not just about drawing and painting and music. Wherever and whenever you cultivate order and beauty that contributes to people flourishing, you are creative and your creativity is for God's glory. The question isn't whether you're creative. It's how you're creative and what you will do with your creativity. You're creative, and your creativity is far more valuable than you know. Because it does not come from the earth around you, but it comes from the heavens beyond you. 
And what I want you to do today is to see how your creativity, your beauty, and the creativity and the beauty around you points to God. Because you see, your creativity, it's not grounded in your skills or your talents. It's grounded in the commission that God gave to all humanity. God gave humanity a commission to be creative, and you are part of that by virtue of being human. And so as part of that, I want us to step through three biblical movements to help us understand that. Number one, we were created to cultivate a city. Secondly, because of sin, the garden is gone, and we build babels that leave us empty. And in Christ, we are citizens of a city where we can be satisfied. Now, let me personalize that. And I want us to say it together. Use I for those. I was created to cultivate a city. Because of sin, the garden is gone, and I build babbles that leave me empty. In Christ, I am a citizen of a city where I can be satisfied. Those are three truths about creativity in the scriptures. And so let's take a look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, where it says, Then God said, Let us make man, humankind, humanity, in our image, according to our likeness. Now, I want us to understand something. In Genesis 1 and 2, the primary point in Genesis 1 and 2 is to communicate how the God of Israel is different, separate from, totally distinct and unlike any of the gods of the nations around Israel. That's the point of Genesis 1 and 2. It's the God that they worship is different from, is unlike any of the false gods of the nations around them. And you have to understand something that ancient Near Eastern kings would do. Ancient Near Eastern kings would often, to show that they owned a particular place, they would set up an image or a likeness of themselves in that place. And they would do this in many, many places. And so they would set up these colossal images, particularly the Egyptians set up these colossal images of their rulers to declare, I own this place. This place where this image of me is, I own it. It's mine. Every time you see that image, you remember this king is saying, I own that place. It belongs to me. So what is God doing here? We see, no matter how colossal and amazing and beautiful those images were, they were lifeless likenesses. <laughs> but you see what our God is doing? He says, I can do what none of those kings can do. I'll create a living image of myself. <laughs> they can't do that. All those gods that, that you're doing and, and all those kings of these statues, all those things like that, they're saying they own this place and they can only make lifeless images. But the God of Israel, the God we worship, the God who creates the world, the true God, he creates living images as reminders of who owns this place. Now, when you look to your left and you look to your right right now, you see all the beautiful people around you. And what you are seeing are living reminders. God owns this. Every human being you see, no matter how high, no matter how low, no matter where they come from, no matter where they're going to, they are a living reminder that God owns this place. That's why he creates in his image is to show that. So we are reminders of who rules, but we're also something else. We as human beings are representatives who are to accomplish God's will. 
So you are, as a human being, you are a reminder and you have a responsibility. You are a reminder of who's in charge and you have a responsibility to do his will in the world. When it says we're his representative, it doesn't mean we look like God. God is spirit. We don't look like him, but we represent him in the sense of being his envoys, his expressions, his representatives responsible to do his will in the world. And every one of you is a reminder with a responsibility. And one of the responsibilities we have in the beginning is we were cultivated, created to cultivate a city. That's what's being expressed here. We were created to cultivate a city. In that garden, the Garden of Eden, what is happening here is God has created this perfect little place. And we don't know how big or how small, but it's a perfect location. But here's the thing. God leaves the rest of the planet unformed and unfilled. He says, I'm creating this, I'm putting this together, created this whole beautiful world, but it's not all a garden. And what he's telling them, Adam and Eve, is you go out beyond the garden and you make the whole world look like this. You have all this space to work with. Create, be creative, make it beautiful, is what he's saying. It's as if, imagine this, it's as if you were to take a painter, were to take a big canvas, and that painter were to paint just a tiny little bit on that canvas and make it so beautiful and so good, and then he hands it over to somebody else and says to them, you, you fill in the rest. You have creativity. You create, you make it beautiful. You fill in the rest. It's, it's kind of like, does anybody play the game Carcassonne? Has anybody know what that game is? It's this great little board game that you get, and what you do is you get this, these tiles like this, and you start out with one little tiny tile, and then you have all the other tiles, and you build them out all around it, and you create this whole city, this whole city. Carcassonne is what it's called, which is actually a, a city in southwest France as well. But this, this Carcassonne is this game that you play, and you start with this. And then you build a whole city all the way out and around this. That's what God does. He says, this, you start with this. And he says, then you all keep building. Just keep making it beautiful. It's beautiful. It is balanced. I am going to create something beautiful here is what God's doing. He gives them a pattern and an order in Eden. And then he says, go for it. Create, build, finish what I started. And how are they supposed to do that? Well, there's four things that he gives them in this text. He says to them, fill it, rule it, till it, and keep it. Those are four things. He gives them, fill it, rule it, till it, keep it. So he says in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, it says, God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth through the beautiful complementarity of a man and a woman. He says, form families and fill the earth with those families. But then he says also, he says, not only fill it, but rule it. Be a king and a queen, we might say, who bring order and peace and justice to this world. And then he says, till it. Now, tilling it has to do with plowing, and we see this in chapter 2 and verse 15. So if we look at verse two, chapter 2 and verse 15, we say, The Lord God took the man, placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch it, or to till it and keep it. But that word that's translated work it or till it, that's a word that has to do, yes, with plowing, but it also has to do with any time that you bring order where there was not order before. <laughs> 
It's what it's brought about. You order where there was not order before. It's bringing an orderliness. So till it, and then he says, keep it or watch it. Watch it. It is not to be consumed for your own benefit, but it is to be kept for future generations. That's what he's expressing right here. These are four beautiful biblical commands. Fill it, rule it, till it, keep it. Here's one thing that's even more interesting. That those words that are translated to work it and to watch it or to till it and to keep it, those are used at times for worship and the work of the priests in the temples. And so here's what seems to be being expressed here is that they are to create, they are to be creative and to fill the world with garden temples, a garden city, we might say. They are to fill the world with these garden cities, garden temples, these expressions that that show just like in Eden, there's this perfect balance between humanity and nature and all of those things. They're to fill the earth with structures and culture and art that they are to spread around the globe and it's going to be these beautiful garden cities. Here's the vision that was originally humanities. We're to go from the Garden of Eden to build a glorious garden city. Wow, what a vision that God gave to them. What a beautiful thing that is being described right here. But not only that here, it's even gets better because there's the beginnings of culture here as well. Look at verse 19, what it has to say in verse 19. The Lord formed out of the ground every wild animal, every bird of the sky, and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds, to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was yet found, was found corresponding to him. What do you see right there? You see in this the beginnings of science. That's what he's doing right there. He's categorizing all the different species. He's analyzing, looking at these and categorize them. You've got the beginnings of science. But not only that, you have in this text the beginning of art as well. It says in verse 23, when the man sees the woman, he says, this one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. You notice that is put in poetry or a song. Adam's composed a song. This is the first human-created song in all of creation is this right here. You have the beginnings of the arts right here. So all of this before the fall, you have a beautiful garden that's supposed to be formed into a glorious city. You have the beginnings of science. You have the beginnings of the arts. Everything was there for a perfect world, but you and I both know what happens next. You had one job, Adam and Eve, and you blew it. You did the one thing that God told you not to do. They were placed in the garden to be representatives and reminders of the presence of God. But instead of representatives and reminders, they became rebels. And so did you, and so did I, and so have we all. We have all rebelled against this beautiful vision and chosen our own way. And so, where are we at now? It's simply this. We didn't get to the city. (laughs) Instead, we have fallen. The garden is gone. The garden is gone, and because of sin, the garden is gone, and we build babbles that leave us empty. That's where we're at. Builders of babbles that leave us empty. There's culture 
that still continues after this. We see that in chapter 4 and verse 17, where it says that Cain built a city. So there's cities that do continue. There's even the arts. We see Genesis 4, 21. We see music develops more. The arts develop. And so we've got cities that are developed. We've got the arts that are developed. We also have in, in the form of sciences. You see, in verse 22, it describes how metalworking begins to emerge during this time as well. All these things, you have arts, you have sciences, you have cities, but it is all pervaded. It is all disordered. It is all disordered. It is not what God created it to be. And still, and here's one of the most beautiful things in this, nevertheless, despite all that, the goodness that God put in his creation and the beauty that God put in his creation was so good that not even sin could completely destroy it. You realize that? I want us to feel the weight of that. We deserve to have all beauty taken away from us because of our sin. We deserve not to be able to experience any of this joy and beauty and wonder and creativity. But God, in his mercy, still lets us taste it, still lets us see it. God is so good, and his goodness is so good that not even sin could completely destroy it. That is the goodness of our God. J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of the Lord of the Rings books, he had this to say. He said, we have come from God and inevitably the myths woven by us, though they contain error, will also reflect a splintered fragment of the true light, the eternal truth that is with God. Do you realize that all the beauty you see in the world, all the beauty you create, there is in that a splintered fragment of the true light all around us. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's not just in the stories we tell, but it's also in our paintings, in our pottery, in our cultures, in our communities, in our stories, in our songs. And it's also those of you who are in the medical industry, it's in a, a surgery done well, a diagnosis given rightly. It's in a building that is built well. It's in plumbing that is done well and done with justice and with care for the people around you. All those things are creativity. It's for those of you who work with people in their relationships and you rebuild their relationships creatively to help them to be able to honor God. It's for those of you who are teachers and are finding ways to get to children's minds that you couldn't figure out before and you're putting things together creatively trying to help people learn. All those are splintered fragments of the true light, the light that is with God. Wherever you're cultivating order and beauty that contributes to people flourishing, there's creativity. And your creativity is for God's glory. Here's what's even more amazing. God lets this be something that non-Christians can participate in too. Do you realize that? That by God's common grace, even those who aren't Christians can produce amazing art, can produce good work. Even those who aren't Christians can do that. We can learn from them. We can hear what they have to say and recognize that even then, even though they aren't believers in Jesus, they see and they glimpse some glimmer of truth and light. And once in a while... You know, you, you sense this. You sense the beauty of the world around you, don't you, once in a while? You're, you're walking on the Big Four Bridge, 
And, and I, I love walking Big Four Bridge and the, all the, the diversity of people and all of that. And sometimes you gaze out over the Ohio River and you see the sun shimmering on it and you forget that it's toxic and full of E. coli for the moment. <laughs> and you look out over that, you look down the river and it's beautiful and it's good and it's wonderful. And you get a tiny glimpse in that moment of exactly what we were created for. You do that. Maybe you're at a, a sports event. I think that the sports events are one of the times we taste this, and here's why. Because it's, it gives us a glimpse of what God intended with that balance of the green and the beautiful with human structures. The garden cities we talk about, those, it gives us a glimpse of that. You're sitting out at the soccer stadium, and you have this moment, and it's the sun setting, and it's just really, really beautiful and it's good, and you enjoy it, and you're with people you love. And you're like, this is what life is supposed to be. This is what it is. You're, you're at the baseball game, and you're like, all oh, the silly things, the, the baseball game of the silly songs and the doing the wave and all those things, and, and singing, and, and all the things you're doing, sweet Caroline, bum, bum, you know, all those things like that. You know, all those things. I don't even care about Caroline, but I like singing the song nonetheless. But it, the point is, is that in those moments, of community, and in those moments of the green and the structure, you feel what you were created for. You feel that. You sense that that you were created for. But here's the temptation. It's the same as those who built the Tower of Babel. The temptation is to try to trust in those things to bring you ultimate satisfaction. Ah. And you get wrapped up in a particular team so that when they win, you're high up. And when they lose, you're down low. You end up trying to see the relationships that are good and beautiful to get your ultimate satisfaction out of those. In a certain house you want, a certain job you want, a certain relationship you want, whatever it may be, you try to find ultimate satisfaction in the thing that is created instead of the creator. And we just build a bunch of babbles. And so here's where we're at. We have this here where we've got Garden of Eden, we've fallen, and then we just build babbles. We try to get to that garden city without God, and instead of getting there, we just build more babbles that never satisfy us, never give us what we're looking for. And what we've forgotten is that all those things are just signs to point to God's goodness. And we are foolish to look to these things for satisfaction. It would be like, this summer our family spent quite a bit of time at Hurricane Bay. And so let's imagine that on a day we were going to go to Hurricane Bay, that I took my kids and we went through that, that initial walking in there. And then there's a big sign there that says Kentucky Kingdom and Hurricane Bay. And I said to the kids, look, we're here. Let's go now. Okay, the kids are going to be unhappy. Everybody's going to be unhappy. Why? Because the sign isn't the point. The sign is to point you to the greater reality behind it. But when I take something that was never supposed to give me ultimate satisfaction, and I try to get ultimate satisfaction out of that, that's what I'm doing. I'm taking something that's a sign intended to point me somewhere else, and I'm trying to get my satisfaction out of the sign. And you never find it. You never get it. C.S. Lewis, great British theologian of the 20th century, had this to say. 
The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trusted them. The beauty was not in them. It only came through them. If they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we haven't found, the echo of a tune we haven't heard, news from a country we've never yet visited. They're not the reality. They're meant to point you to the reality. When you try to find the reality in them, you end up like another great British theologian of the 20th century, Mick Jagger, who says, I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. And that's how you end up if you try to find satisfaction in them. And we do hear that so often in our music. You hear people with that despair of recognizing there's a glimmer of hope, there's a glimmer of joy, there's something there that's right in the world, and I can't quite get to it. Think of Comfortably Numb by Pink Floyd. Think about that. That's exactly what it's all about. When I was a child, I caught a fleeting glimpse out of the corner of my eye. I turned to look, but it was gone. I cannot put my finger on it now. The child has grown, the dream is gone, and I have become comfortably numb. That's all of us. That's all of us. We've glimpsed the beauty, but we try to make that the thing that we find our satisfaction in, and it leaves us numb. It leaves us numb. But there is hope. You see, there is no satisfaction without a Savior. I want us to recognize the brokenness, but I also want us to see the joy and the truth, because God has not left us without hope. In Christ, we are citizens of a city where we will be satisfied. If you are in Christ, you are the citizen of a city where you will be satisfied. It's not fully come yet, but it is promised, it is guaranteed to you, the city that is yet to come. And so what God does is this. Let's take a look at the chart. We have tried to make our babbles. We've fallen from Eden. But what God, by his grace, does is he redeems those who are believers. He restores what is lost in Eden, and he reclaims all of the good that was in our babbles. That's what God does. Let's think through each of those concepts really briefly. He redeems us. That on the cross, Jesus took all the punishment that we deserve and one of the many things for which we deserve punishment is we have taken the good and the beautiful true gifts of God and we have distorted them and tried to find satisfaction in them and they've left us empty. We've rebelled against God by saying, I will not be a representative or a reminder of you. I will be a rebel who goes my own way and I will choose to try to find my satisfaction in the things you've created. Jesus took our place. He took the punishment you deserve for doing that. He redeems those who believe. But not only that, he restores what was lost in Eden. Oh, praise God. He restores it. You see, on that third day after Jesus was crucified, it says that he was laid to rest in a garden tomb. He's raised in a garden. And when Mary sees him, she says, it says she thinks he is the gardener. Because he kind of is. He's the one through whom Eden was created in the beginning. He's the gardener. And she sees that. And that is John's reminder to us in John's gospel that all that was lost in Eden, God is up to restoring. 
He promises it in the resurrection. He will fulfill it at the end of time. So he restores what was lost in Eden. And we see it also in, in Revelation chapter 22. He says, then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, flowing down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, 12 kinds of fruit producing its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. What is this? It is a city, but it is also a garden. It is that garden city that we lost. God in Christ restores. And not only does God redeem and restore, he is so good. He also reclaims all that is good in what we've built. Do you realize that? God reclaims all that is good in what we've built. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 22. I love this text. John says, I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb were its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day. It will never be night there. They will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Pause and think about this. What it is letting us know is that all that is true and beautiful and good in every nation, in every culture, that is going to be purified, refined, and brought into the city. All that is evil in it will be burned away. All that is, is not good, all that is falling short, all that is distorted will be burned away and purified. And whatever is good and true and beautiful about it gets brought into the city forever. Every culture, everyone, the things that we built that were beautiful and true and good, they come into that city in their fullness and in their beauty. Let's just think about what that means. All the best parts of, of hip-hop and heavy metal, all the best parts of, of jazz and classical music, all of the injera bread from Ethiopia. You ever had that stuff? It's amazing. Injera bread from Ethiopia. The tostones you get in the Dominican Republic. Oh, it's wonderful, amazing. Kimchi will be brought in. Stained glass windows that will be brought in. All that was true and beautiful and good in the philosophies of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. All the best of the stories we told. All the Star Wars movies except the ones with Jar Jar Binks. All that gets brought into the city. It gets pulled into the city and it is kept forever in its purity and in its beauty. That's what we have. God reclaims all that is good in what we have built. And in that city, even with all that, none of that is the most beautiful thing in the city. The most beautiful thing in the city is not a thing but a person, and it's God. God is the most beautiful thing. Because all those things that are good, anything good about them, got it because they borrowed it from God. So he's the most beautiful thing in the whole city. There's nothing more beautiful than that. And we receive in this city because of what Jesus did in taking our place for no other reason other than the merits and the goodness of Jesus given to us for no other reason. We receive all this beauty. We receive it. It's what David dreamt of. In Psalm 27, when David cried out this, I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. That's what we get. 
That's what we get. That's what's given to us in Jesus. Anything that was good somehow pointed to him. So what do we do with this? As we think of creativity and beauty and the arts, I want to leave you with four really simple things that I want you to absorb into your life. Number one, it's simple. But look for, always look for, the fragments of light. Everything that is good, beautiful, or true, there is a splintered fragment of the true light somewhere in that. But like that man with the meteorite, sometimes we don't notice the value of what we have. Look for it. Search for it. Seek for it. Slow down. Slow down and learn to appreciate beauty. Don't just look at the surface level of a painting. Slow down. Take a few moments. Try to look at the individual brush strokes in that painting. Pause. Breathe that. Listen to John Coltrane in A Love Supreme and hear the vibration of the saxophone reed. You put that on vinyl and you can hear the vibration of that saxophone reed. Listen to it. Slow down. Take the time to listen and to notice beauty. We just don't do that often. Slow down. Find something beautiful. Listen to it. Watch it. Think about it. It's a famous poem from Elizabeth Barrett Browning that says, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush of fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round and pluck blackberries. So many people just don't see the beauty around them. We as Christians of all people ought to be noticing beauty. We ought to be able to hear and to see and to notice, and not just in the arts, but in the people. Every person you meet is a wonderful work of creativity that you can explore and get to know. Every person, everything, slow down. Take the time to notice. And here's something I've noticed about that. It's when we learn to do that, there are times when life gets really, really dark for us. And when you take the time to be able to do that, there are times you can't find God and you're seeking, you're praying. It seems like God's silent. <coughs> it seems like everything is dark in your life. You're in those times. If you've never faced one of those times, you will. It's just a matter of time where you feel like it is dark and God is silent. In those times, if you learn to pay attention to the beauty of God in the things you see. Sometimes you can't find God in the dark, but you can find a song or something beautiful, and that is your reminder that God is still there. Learn to do that. Learn to do that. And that brings us to the second point I want you to get, and that is look beyond the fragments of light. Where is it in your life that you're trusting something or someone to bring ultimate satisfaction that only God can bring. Where are you doing that? Take an honest assessment of your life and say, where am I trying to find ultimate satisfaction in something other than God? I can give you a hint that will let you know where that is in your life. And it's this. 
When and where in your life do you get really angry when it doesn't go the way you planned? <laughs> Ouch, right? <laughs> okay, be honest. Where do I get really angry when things don't go according to plan? Behold the place where you're doing that. Because you're expecting something to bring you ultimate satisfaction, and when it falls short of that, you are angry and frustrated with it, and you can't control it. Why? Because you invested more in that than it can ever give you. That's where you got to learn to look for those. Think about that. Where is that in your life? It could even be a good thing, but you're turning a good thing into a God thing. And all those things make wonderful gifts, but they make terrible gods. And so where is it that you are investing something with ultimate satisfaction in your expectations Is it when something doesn't go an event how you planned? Is it when your children don't perform the way you'd hoped? Is it a vacation? If it doesn't go right, I get frustrated, angry, sad about that and upset with it. Where is it? But here's the thing. If we realize none of those things were ever supposed to give us ultimate satisfaction, we can say what was good in it pointed to God And it wasn't supposed to satisfy me anyway. (laughs) There was some good in it. It pointed to God. There were things that were not good. And it wasn't supposed to give me ultimate satisfaction anyway. Where is it in your life that you sense that? Thirdly, make this world more beautiful than it is. Just make this world more beautiful. Yes, this world will be renewed and refined that with this world, God is going to renew it and refine it in a way that will change it at some point in the future when he chooses to in his power and in his way. But all that is good, as we've already learned, it gets kept. God keeps all that is good. Everything that is good, beautiful, and true, it was Jesus's property to begin with. And God will transform this world. And because of that, we can try to make this world better. Not because we're trusting in this world, but precisely because we're hoping for a better world and we want to do all that we can to make this world now look like that world in the future. So you'll love the next world most and that helps you love this one best because you'll love the next one most. You'll love that world that is to come and therefore let's make this one beautiful. Let's make it beautiful. J.F. Hacker, many of you may have read his book, Knowing God, but in another one of his books, he has this, these lines here that I want you to hear. Hear what he has to say. To affirm and bask in the goodness of the world, to praise God for the wonders of creation, to practice responsible stewardship of this small planet and to honor its maker by using its resources wisely are all integral aspects of the work that Christians are called to do. Any idea that consistent Christianity must undermine or diminish concern for the tasks of civilization should be dismissed once and for all. Make this world good. Make this world better. Because you know that there's a better world that is yet to come. And lastly, remember where beauty points. Never forget that. Never forget where beauty points. It points to God. I'm not going to work this all out right here, but understand that the beauty and particularly human creativity, they are one of the strongest arguments for the existence of God. You see, a a world that is completely naturalistic, 
a world without any God whatsoever, that type of world ought only to maintain and to keep creativity that contributes to either human survival or human reproduction. That's all it should keep. It should eliminate everything else. And yet we create so much beauty and we long to create it and we're able to create it. We love to create it. And that is evidence of the existence of a true and real and beautiful God. Understand that. All the way back in the fifth century that this was seen so clearly by Augustine. I knew I was going to do this quote, so I wore my St. Augustine t-shirt, okay? And so that even so just thinking about this, Augustine, the great North African theologian, said, question the beauty of the earth, the sea, the air spread around everywhere, the sky, the ranks of the stars, the sun making the day glorious with its bright beams, the moon tempering the darkness of night with its shining rays, the animals, question all the beauty of these things, and they will all answer you, here we are. Look, we're beautiful. Their beauty is their confession. Who made these beautiful, changeable things, if not one who is beautiful and unchangeable? They are evidence of the reality of our God. I read recently an article by an atheist, uh, he's a physicist named Steven Weinberg. And he gets to a certain point in what he says, and he says, nature is more beautiful than is strictly necessary. I love that. He just kind of doesn't know what to do with it. He says, I don't know what to do with this. It's just more beautiful than it has to be. And I don't know why, but I, I do know why. Because it was created by a God who is beautiful and unchanging. And he has created precisely this. And honestly, think of the beauty of creation, but also the beauty we make. And understand a godless universe cannot come up with John Coltrane and the Love Supreme. Listen to that. This whole thing that builds so beautifully, the creativity in that, you can't come out of a godless world. You only get that if it comes from a source that is beautiful and that is good. And then to think through at the end, here's what I want you to remember. This is what I want to leave you with. is simply this. God's supreme power and beauty is shown by the fact that he takes what is broken and bruised and makes it beautiful. That's the supreme expression of this. A God who can take the failure of Eden, a God who can take not just the failures of Eden, but the awfulness of the cross and turn it into something beautiful is a God who is worth worshiping. And it's a God who gives you a promise that all that bruisedness and all the brokenness in your life, God will make it beautiful in his time and in his way. He makes bruises and brokenness beautiful. Remember several years ago, my third daughter was, she was about six or seven. And one day she, in the summer, she came in and she, her legs were all just kind of bruised and scratched up like, what on earth did you do, child? And so she goes, started going through a story of, of each, well, this one I got when I was doing this, and this one I got over here, and I bumped this over here, and I did this. And then she said something that's always stuck with me. She says, sometimes your bruises can tell you where you've been. They tell you where you've been. And that's true. That's true. The bruises of your life, they tell you where you've been. But here's something even more beautiful. By God's grace, your bruises may tell you where you've been, but they don't tell you where you're going. His bruises... 
his wounds, his brokenness. They tell you where you're going. They tell you where you're going. You are going to the glorious garden city that God has created if you are in Christ. If you have trusted in him, that is where you are going. And it is better and more beautiful than we could ever dream. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.